0: Just like Lot living in Sodom, you surround yourself with things that you know full well are not godly and are not good for you. For example, returning to social groups and peer groups that you know full well have an overpowering bad influence over you. Or this disproportionately consuming uh, TV and movies that you'd be embarrassed to watch with your mother or your pastor. Beside you. Or this: slavishly returning to addictions and/or distractions, whether it be substances or games or social media or whatever else uh, you find addictive. Or this: wallowing in your own thoughts of pity or anxiety, or jealousy or gloom. And then spiralling in those things, because at least when you spiral there, you have some control over what you feel. And it feels kind of nice to be, you know, as anxious as you feel like you should be, or to be as angry and self-righteous as you feel like you have the right to be. But spiralling in those things without ever stepping off the roundabout through repentance. Maybe you're distressed by your own sin. We learn that Lot is, in some sense, distressed by the sin of the nation or the, or the city around him. Maybe you're distressed, but you haven't taken any steps to remove the eye or the hand that causes you to sin or the temptation that draws you back in. And yet in all this, you understand yourself to be forgiven by one who watches over you. Jesus knew you and your mistakes before you were born. And he carried his own cross and suffered its pain and shame out of his love and out of God's good, generous mercy. And Genesis chapters 18 and 19 give us another lively picture. These events are nearly 4,000 years ago. They're about 2,000 years before John wrote those words on the page of how that looks, to have an advocate for those who really are not worthy. So theologically speaking, that's kind of the point of these chapters in a nutshell. That today, even if you are entrenched in sin, Christ who died for you is advocating for your rescue, just as Abraham advocated for Lot. But we're going to run through the whole two chapters because there's, uh, there's too much to, leave, uh, uh, to just leave on the table. So uh, breaking it up into about six bits, just a little bit at a time, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 18, it says... Uh, In verse 1, and this is, sorry, there's a couple of verses here that I'm going to reference that aren't on the screen and it might be helpful if you're interested in following. So verse 1, it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham. And then in verse 2, it goes down like this. The Lord appeared to Abraham. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. Seems like it's one and the same image. There's the Lord, there's three men. How does this work? Well, we read on. In chapter 19, two of the men, two of the three men, have peeled away to go down to Sodom and they're referred to throughout chapter 19, sometimes as men and sometimes as angels. So at least two of the three men are angels. What about the third? Go quickly back to chapter 18. In verse 22, it says, The men, the three men, turned away... Or sorry, it may only be two of the three men. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. So piecing all this together, we basically have, as I understand it, two options for understanding how this vision of the Lord, which is made up of three men, works. Uh, In the text itself, this is one option, in the text itself it was seen that of the three manly figures who appear to Abraham, two are angels who go down to Sodom and the third who's left standing behind talking to Abraham is actually the Lord himself in human form and the fairly classical Christian interpretation of this is that if this is God in human form then it's likely to be well this is God incarnate this is Jesus Christ himself even before his birth which is not impossible since we also learn in the New Testament that Jesus himself is the eternal son, the one who, uh, through whom the world was created even before his own uh, birth and entry into the world. So maybe it's this, maybe there's two angels and one Jesus. Maybe. Uh, the other likely possibility is that, it, is that it is in fact simply three angels. I say simply, that's, not, that's still remarkable, but three angels. Now, if that's the case then Abraham's conversation with the angel, which I'm referring to now as an angel in in chapter 18, then it's framed as a conversation with the Lord himself. But it may actually be an angel. That would seem clunky, but let me put it like this. If I, for example, ask child number one to pack their bike away, and they don't, later I might say to child number one, I asked you to pack that bike away. If I ask child number one to pack their bike away and also say to child number one, go and tell child number two, daddy says, pack your bike away as well. And later on, child number two hasn't packed their bike away. Then I might say to child number two, I asked child number one to tell you that daddy said to pack that bike away. Or I may also say, I, for simple, simply say, for simplicity, I asked you to pack that bike away. The child never heard my words say it, but my words were transmitted to them. I spoke through a messenger, but I still spoke. And so it's possible that this third human figure in chapter 18 is another angel simply speaking intimately the Lord's words on behalf of the Lord. Uh, And so it's written in summary form that simply that this is the Lord who speaks. Um, Although this text on its own reads like one of the three figures is God himself uh, and the other two are angels, reading the whole Bible together will also show you that this kind of shorthand is quite common where words spoken audibly by a prophet or an angel are simply referred to as the word of the Lord. Now, like I said, the classical Christian interpretation is actually that one of the men there is Jesus. I'm just showing you that there's another possibility there. And I think it's interesting. Either way, these three heavenly visitors are treated by Abraham to a lavish meal with Sarah's help. Moving on to verse 9 to 15, which we didn't read. But in short... Over the meal, the Lord repeats to Abraham the promise that we've already heard again and again, and the specific promise from just chapter 17, uh, which Bernard preached on last week, that not only will Abraham have a son, but that inside of the next 12 months, his wife Sarah specifically will have a son for him. And then also in there, just as Abraham had laughed in chapter 17 when he heard the news, since he's 99, Sarah, who is eavesdropping in the tent, aged 89, also has a laugh to herself. Verses 16 to 33, the rest of the chapter is filled with negotiation. First, God seems to negotiate with himself. He, does, he has this sort of self-discussion of whether or not he's going to bring Abraham in on his plans to go down to Sodom. Uh, and this again, I have to say, it's another example of God's intimate relationship with, With Abraham it's even part I would say of God's blessing to Abraham because it's true isn't it that to let someone in on your plans is to open up your own heart to a person you're not obliged to share your plans with everyone that you meet you don't share your diary with everyone to let someone in on your plans is to open up your own heart to invite someone to speak into your plans and to even advise you that is that's maximum trust and so God appears to be modelling for Abraham something like what he would want from us, that we open our hearts and bring him on, in on our plans and entrust him with our plans and trust him to speak with wisdom into our plans. Well, Abraham does speak up. Hearing God's intention to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, in verse 23 it says that Abraham drew near and said... Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then in verse 25, Abraham escalates. He gets actually very bold. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And as we read, we we see that Abraham, starting at 50 people works his way down until he learns that God would spare, in fact, the whole of Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of sparing just 10 righteous people. Now, that's, that, is really, that is really something. Pause on that. That is really something, that God would spare the whole city, two whole cities, for the sake of 10. Sometimes Bible stories like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah are framed as evidence that God has, or maybe the Old Testament God had, or something like this, God has an itchy trigger finger. He's just hanging out to fire up the flamethrower and blast some sinners away. But here we see that actually the opposite is true. That God's love for his righteous ones is stronger than his hatred of sin much much stronger emphatically stronger his love for his righteous ones is stronger than his hatred of sin if we were trying to put ourselves in God's place and you know try to be you know some sort of deity and how we imagine they ought to be like cool and detached and mathematical and formulaic we might say well you know what the righteousness of 10 people just simply doesn't balance against the wickedness of hundreds or maybe thousands of evil people On balance, you or I might say, well, to wipe out the city, you wipe out more bad than good, so it's still net positive to just simply come in and burn. But God's scales don't work that way. Jesus tells a parable that's similar. In the New Testament, Jesus says, A farmer sows wheat in his field, but while he sleeps, his enemy sows wheat in the same field. And when the wheat begins to sprout, so do the weeds. And the farm workers suggest that they go in to pull up the weeds, and the farmer says no, because to gather the weeds would be to compromise, you know, at this young stage, would compromise the wheat, the good seed. So we let them grow together until the harvest. Now, you might say God's mercy outweighs his justice, but I wouldn't say that. God's mercy doesn't outweigh his justice. I'd say this. We actually learn from God that justice that is true and ideal incorporates mercy. Justice must have mercy or it's not justice. There is no true justice without mercy. Although the question does still arise from all this, how bad are Sodom and Gomorrah? What did they do? How bad that God is contemplating destroying them like this? Was it really that bad or is this just an angry God who's out for destruction? Well, let's go down with the angels and find out what Sodom and Gomorrah are like. Verses 1 to 11, the angels are met at the city gates by Lot, in much the same way that Abraham looks up and sees three men walking towards him, Lot looks up and sees two men walking towards him, Abraham prepares a feast, so does Lot. But no sooner... Do they finish the meal in Lot's house and they're surrounded by every man in the city, young and old, demanding their right to rape them? Now tell me, from this scenario, what would you say is the most confronting aspect? The homosexuality? Or the brazen attitude and inclination towards gang rape? What do you reckon? Well, let me ask you this question. Is gay gang rape worse than heterosexual gang rape? It might be more twisted in some aspect, but I don't see that it's more cruel. They're both clearly abhorrent. Now, you know, uh, the public view these days seems to be that Christians have a disproportionate vendetta against homosexuality. My experience, by and large, is that Christian people who, by the way, do believe that homosexual behaviour is sin, that Christian people who believe this still love and accept homosexual people as friends and family, as they should. Now, I'll say this. this is, that, that's been my experience of observation. I am not gay, so I may not be as sensitive to the church's insensitivities. And so I understand why other people might feel differently about that. Uh, maybe you already know this. The biblical city Sodom has given its name to the English term sodomy, which means homosexual sex. And so this impression has filtered down through the ages that God essentially targeted Sodom because of homosexuality. I emphatically disagree. Emphatically. Read what the prophet Ezekiel said about Sodom. This is how the sin of Sodom is described in uh, in Ezekiel. The guilt of Sodom is pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, and yet not aiding the poor and needy, haughty, and an abomination before the Lord, which I think is probably a reference to these events in, uh, uh, in Genesis 19. This episode in Genesis 19 doesn't mainly teach us that the men of Sodom were homosexual it teaches us that on top of greed systemic corruption and exploitation they were united in their inclination towards sexual abuse of a particularly brutal brutal and brazen nature we also don't know whether they knew the men were angels but that is part of it too. You know, we, we have where Abraham sees these men and he offers them hospitality. Lot sees these men and he offers them hospitality. The people of Sodom see these men, these things of God, as just more things to be degraded for their own gratification. It's particularly heinous. And particularly we see that Abraham's prayer about ten righteous men is rendered in the end irrelevant. God doesn't need to answer that prayer because there's not 10 righteous men there it actually makes it clear in the text that it's every man of the city young and old Fa- lots family are the only ones referred to as righteous in all of this though even though e- even they are untainted as we see so i mean what 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 do we make of Lot offering his virgin daughters to the mob as well. Did you pick up on that? Maybe it was just a tactic. We don't, like, we, we're not inside his head. Maybe it was a tactic. Maybe he knew they wouldn't accept. Maybe he's trying to buy some time. Maybe we're meant to read it as some kind of bizarre extension of his hospitality to the heavenly visitors, that he would offer his own family to preserve them. Maybe. That's radical, but definitely gross. Uh, maybe, maybe it's even... Uh, a perverted sort of a foreshadowing of a God who would give up his own son to be ravaged by the world. If so, perverted is still the word, since we also know that while Jesus' treatment was in a lot of ways no less perverse, Jesus gave himself willingly, while Lot's daughters presumably are offered against their will. Either way, thankfully, it doesn't come to that. At the point that the mob threatens to rape Lot along with his guests, the angels strike the mob blind and they reef Lot indoors. Verses 12 to 29. They tell Lot to take his family and run. The two men betrothed to his daughters, they refuse. Even Lot drags his feet. It says in verse 16, Lot lingered. So... The men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Now, isn't that uh, just supremely instructive as a picture of God's mercy? The Lord being merciful to Lot forcibly removed him from danger. Whose idea was Lot's salvation? not his. Whose work was Lot's salvation? The Lord's. This is a mercy administered by force. Isn't it the case that every one of us uh, who walks, so to speak, hand in hand with God, walk mostly several steps behind, resisting while he pulls us forward? Certainly at times at least. Absolutely, if it weren't for God's grace and his nearly violent mercy probably none of us would preserve to the end. But, as persuasive as God is in his mercy, uh, there does appear to be a limit. It says that in the end, Lot's wife gets destroyed along with the cities since she, as, as the text says, she looks back. Uh, she returns either figuratively in her heart or physically with her feet to Sodom. We don't know which, but she's destroyed with the city. I'm not certain why it says that she became a pillar of salt, but it's graphic, isn't it? It's pretty final. She's gone. She's dust, literally. It may be that salt was applied to her dead body. It could be a description of what her smoldering, ashy remains looked like in the aftermath of the fire. It's almost, meant, it's almost definitely meant as some kind of monument of the fate of those who, having tasted God's mercy, return to being his enemy. And we come to the final shocking passage at the end. I'm going to read it. Rescued Lot goes up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. She's speaking about having sex. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make, make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring uh, from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down and when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name ben He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Three things. First, the Bible is PG parental guidance is strongly recommended, uh, as it should be. Uh, Second, the fact that Lot's descendants were, as it says up there still, the Moabites and the Ammonites, this is relevant as you read the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, Because they are connected to Abraham through Lot, uh, the Israelites are instructed to show mercy to the nations of Moab and Ammon. Uh, But... The Moabites and the Ammonites make themselves a thorn in Israel's side. They live mostly as enemies uh, and they cause repeated strife, uh, as you read on. But that comes much later. Third, third thing out of this episode. It seems, doesn't it, as if the sins of Sodom have, have followed Lot. He hasn't really left them behind. And there's got to be in here some kind of warning about what you expose yourselves and your family to, not that we should live in monasteries, not that we should you know bolt the doors and stay away from everything strange or uh, or to us un- uh, unfamiliar or frightening, but it does mean that we it, it does indicate I think that we teach our children what is what is acceptable by what we accept as much as by what we participate in. It is good as our children are exposed to more and more things of the world, for us to actively critique the things in the world with our children. Um, not criticise, necessarily, uh, or certainly not all the time, but to critique uh, and assess and weigh up and talk about what are, what are things that we as a family value? Uh, what does God think of what's going on over here? Lot's daughters have taken in some kind of poison from the madness that they grew up in. And so in conclusion, uh, we return full circle to, uh, to where we began, what I introduced us to at the start. Lot isn't all bad. He's not all bad, but he's a shambles, isn't he? A shambles. He eats the fruit of his own foolish decision-making. Uh, you may recall from uh, chapter, which was it, 13 or 14, um, that Lot chose Sodom as Abraham opened up the land and said, Lot, choose where you want to live, and knowing full well the reputation of the land of Sodom, that is where Lot chose to live. We also know from back there uh, that Lot actually uh, pitched his tent outside the city, but by the time we meet him in chapter 19, he's a judge in the city. Uh, He's got a place of honor in the city. Now, sometimes... Righteous, honourable people can still be honoured by dishonourable people. They might still carry uh, something worthy of respect, but it still takes, I think, we understand from this, a compromised character from Lot uh, to have earned such a place there. He's a shambles. He is the fruit of his own decision-making and he enjoys the benefits of God's overpowering mercy. Both end. The man is not worthy and he's saved. Abraham's prayers of chapter 18 didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, but they spared Lot. And so we're reminded again uh, of these words from uh, 1 John, chapter 2. Uh, This whole story of chapter 18, uh, where is it? Back there, of 18 and 19 in Genesis is something like a warning against unrighteous living and surrounding yourself with poison. And John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Don't sin. Don't do it. Don't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you may lead us not into temptation uh, so that we would not sin. But Father, we do. And we thank you that uh, we have a righteous judge who judges with justice, rightly mingled with mercy. And we thank you that uh, your mercy uh, is more aggressive than how we usually think of mercy and we have this picture of lot being dragged almost against his will to safety and that's not an entirely unhelpful uh picture of ourselves being dragged sometimes against our will into safety we thank you that your will prevails that you are a god uh, of mercy and love and grace we thank you for our lord jesus who intercedes for us uh, and vouches for our righteousness and our salvation according to your perfect will. Amen.